Welcome cool. back to Consilience Conversations, episode five, and back with me is Dr. Matt Roos. Welcome back, Matt. Hey, Alex. Good to be here, as always. It's good to have you. And uh, so, as usual, we prepared a little before this, and um, like we did last time, I'm about to share the um, sort of rap sheet we're going to go off of, the sort of, uh, I don't know, basis for our conversation. And um, so, what would you may or may not follow too tightly. Uh, right, right. <laughs> you know, it goes. And, <laughs> excuse me and i'm sorry my voice is sort of gone but i've been lecturing hard this week and i've been putting a lot of content down so it's worth it it's fun and so um today we we read a pretty i would say technically difficult paper called um what was it called the basal ganglia and the amygdala something by jeffrey gray something mm -hmm. like that yeah um, it's an older it's a sort of an older summary uh paper of um, different systems are nuclei, that is basal ganglia, nuclei, and beyond in the uh, uh, subcortical areas of the brain. And it's just for the listeners' uh, awareness. You know, it's, it's an older summary, so there's a lot of newer, more nuanced uh, material in the neuroscience community, community that one could pick up on. But nonetheless, it still uh, does a, you know, uh, a first-order decent job of summarizing some things. Yeah, and uh, so something I was really interested in talking to you about, which uh, we we could make a pretty good literary connection to in Dante's Purgatorio, was sort of the connection between these systems and the release of dopamine or the reward neurotransmitter that makes you feel what like elation and joy, and um, and how that relates to the development of habits and and also what you mentioned below, how that could also potentially lead to like bad habits. Addiction. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And, and we'll get into it, but uh, you know, we should, you know, at some point through this discussion, we'll sort of like delineate a little bit about sort of reward and pleasure. You know, these aren't really the same things. And uh, so a lot of times the, uh, the media portrays it as if dopamine makes you feel pleasure, um, you know, like you would for certain drugs, but that's, that's not really the case. And we can, we can uh. talk about that. Yeah, well, I'd like to hear a little bit about that uh, demarcation or that differentiation between pleasure and reward and what dopamine actually does, because my, my understanding is fairly simplistic like that, so I'd like it to be a little more nuanced. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the, as, as with all material that I discuss about the from, in the neuroscience realm, uh, take it with a little bit of a grain of salt that sometimes these are complex and hard to explain, uh, or even the neuroscientific community uh, doesn't have a, a complete grasp of it. It's just, um, there's a lot to learn still. But anyway, the important point here is that um, we've come to realize in more recent years that you know, is, it's somewhat fair to say dopamine is sort of a reward-related signal, um, or it is a reward-related signal. And what it's related to is sort of the value of some outcome, of some action or behavior or, or some uh, explicit um, uh, tangible reward you might get after performing some behavior, which it could be, of course, food or sex or something else. Um, but it doesn't, it's not the, the dopamine itself that might make you feel that way. It's, um, if we talk about, you know, we often think about this, or people often discuss this in context of drug addictions, uh, pharmaceutical or street drugs, drug addictions. And a lot of times, um, it's not, so if you take something like an opioid, uh, heroin, for example, um, it's, it is the heroin that gives you the pleasure. 
And, and that's not, it's not the dopamine that gives you the pleasure. The, the heroin activates is other different types of neurotransmitters, and that activates sort of pleasure circuits in the brain. Are those but, GABAergic ones? I wanted to ask about that too. Did you say they're, are they GABAergic? Yes. Uh, I think there's going to be a, a variety of them. And so, you know, GABAergic cells uh, are cells that have GABA receptors are, uh, or emit GABA are GABAergic. Um, but that doesn't really relate necessarily to um, what sort of opioid receptors those cells may okay. have. So a single neuron can have receptors for, and does have receptors for many different types of neurotransmitters. Um, oh, wow. So we often talk about glutamatergic cells, which uh, emit glutamate, and that excites other cells when it uh, transmits to them. And you mentioned GABA, and that sort of, that uh, if the GABA is a neurotransmitter that typically uh, inhibits neurons that it passes on the GABA to, um, and that's not a, there's a little bit of variety there, but nonetheless, those are the, you know, those are sort of like some of the dominant neurotransmitters in the, especially in the uh, cortex, but there are many other receptors, and we've already mentioned you know, opioid receptors, there's uh, receptors that are more or less uh, um, uh, responsive to all the types of drugs that someone would consume, alcohol, nicotine, amphetamines, etc. And dopamine receptors are at a lot of places there. So, but again, the real thing is there um, that the pleasure, okay, I'll give you a, 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 probably a more concrete example. And I don't know the details of these experiments. So there have been experiments with rats in which the rat is administered some sort of uh, pharmaceutical which reduces or minimizes the impact of dopamine. So they may, you know, be subjected to some sort of uh, molecule that blocks the dopamine receptors from uh, from dopamine itself um, binding to those receptors. So the impact of dopamine is is low uh, compared to a regular state. And then they allow the animal to self-administer some sort of drug, so say an opioid drug. And that animal will, you know, this rat will move around in the cage and hit some pedal, for example, and then it gets a, uh, some some nice free heroin. So and then that. So what the rat does is it exhibits the behavior, uh, all the behaviors, both it's you know, seeking that, that heroin, as well as its physical response and behavior uh, once it, it takes in that heroin. So it, 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 it still gets all the pleasure from that heroin. But because the dopamine receptors are blocked, it's much, le it's much less likely to become addicted to that hero heroin, or that is not even necessarily addicted, but to continually go seeking that heroin down the road Whereas if it doesn't, if you don't block those dopamine receptors, the rats will get quickly addicted and they will just self-administer to the point where they will, you know, effectively kill themselves. So, uh, so it's, the, it's the dopamine that somehow signals to the system that uh, I enjoyed this. And of course, I'm anthropomorphizing the system, but, you know, the body enjoyed this. This was pleasurable. Therefore, um, I'm going to relate this, this substance to uh, and value it, value it as a reward, and I will go therefore seeking it. Or if I'm in a context and a situation where uh, I recognize that I can take action to um, to obtain that that heroin, opioid, whatever, then then I then uh, dopamine is released. It, it it lets the animal know that this is a um, there's something valuable present here, and I may want to go seek that out. So that's that, yeah yeah that just makes me think that uh how you describe dopamine there is like the grease on the wheel 
and that it just makes with the presence of uh, dopamine the development of a habit or action pattern becomes uh, it, it makes that action pattern easier and easier to implement with less and less effort is what it sounds like because it's what it, yeah it, there's there's and, and so dopamine it's also kind of difficult to ch uh, talk about because it's multifaceted in some of right. uh, the things it, it 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 mediates in the brain and so we just you know talked about that where it sort of it represents reward or value is perhaps a better term value of <clears throat> take of uh, taking some action or receiving some some substance, physical or otherwise, um, but it also has a role in learning and learning uh, you know, habits, as you will. So, what we know most about basal ganglia and dopamine in the basal ganglia are related to motor, because uh, partially because of the you know terrible neurological diseases that are related to that, like Parkinson's disease. So uh, we know about uh, if you lose that dopamine input um, to certain of the brains, you, you have motor problems. So it, it has some role in sort of just day-to-day -day behavior. So kind of jumping around here, but there's three things I would like to, to think about. One is what we mentioned about the reward representation. The other is about, um, it may be more like selection of actions or initiation of actions. And we, we know that particularly from disease like Parkinson's. And so that's that's the relationship of the basal ganglia and the dopamine system with motor regions of the brain. Uh, but a lot of people, it, it's, it's the conventional wisdom is often to uh, talk about five different loops between basal ganglia areas and other cortical areas. And so even though we know the most about the motor system um, and dopamine and basal ganglia connections there, it's likely that there's uh, similar or parallel analogies that can be made with other areas, including frontal lobes for for uh, critical or thinking, cognitive tasks, limbic systems that are more sort of in the emotional space um, and so forth. And then sort of finally, the last three, three of that uh, triumvirate is, the, is simply learning. So um, as, as we learn, um, well, what, what is learning? So it's, it's, uh, there are various forms of it, but a habit may be uh, a learning of again, going back to motor, and a sequence, is a sequence of actions that you might take. So when you're driving the car, you, you effortlessly um, you know, navigate the wheel, work the pedals, and back in the day, work the stick shift. Um, and those are sort of like motor behaviors that are so repeated so often. Early on when you're trying to learn that, you have to think about them very consciously. And the dopamine is uh, uh, released as a reward. Uh, again, that motor, that value. And that can modulate or like sort of open up the learning window uh, and allow for strengthening or weakening of connections between other neurons uh, that are important for that habit to form. But once that habit is formed, uh, it's sort of like crystallized in some neuro new neural circuitry or new connections between those neurons or stronger connections. And now the dopamine is not necessary for that. That habit is just sent effectively initiated. It's now learned. Um, and you, I guess the important part here is it becomes an easy task. You don't have to think about it very much. Um, you do it. It doesn't take as many sort of frontal lobe or cortical uh, resources to activate that habit. And well, that's so interesting because that makes me think two things. Uh, to one of your earlier points um, about the, um, oh, what was it? Sorry, trying to keep two things in my mind at once. Uh, messing things up there. Um, oh, yes. 
what was the connection between um, goals and consciously set goals and consciously held values and pursuit of actions that represent those values monergically? Um, mm-hmm. And how does that relate to the limbic system and the experience of negative emotion? Because my superficial mm. understanding of that, and I'd like to know a little bit more about the limbic system. We were talking about that in the pre-show. And I guess if, if is that it is responsible for negative emotion and becomes disinhibited when your vision of the future, specifically the hippocampus in that way, but maybe the amygdala too. I'd love to know more mm-hmm. about both of them from you. Um, and, and what the limbic system even means. Um, why is it called that? Uh, but um, how, how uh, a perceived or a, a predicted or a desired future does not come about. And then instead of, you know, getting reward, you get punishment from from you know your sure. subcortical circuitry um right yeah and there, it could be that um in some cases uh a release from potential threat uh, or something negative of course that also has value that's pat that has you know that release from the potential negative has positive reward uh, in a sense or positive value associated with it so you know I, i'm speculating here but i don't it may be that dopamine can still play a similar role in uh, conditions or situations where you might want to avoid something. And, and you mentioned the amygdala. Um, there's a lot of complexity there, but it's well known to be sort of a, an area that processes fear or danger, um, aversion. Um, and so how that comes about is not clear. That is how, how is it that the amygdala, how is it that neurons the amygdala uh, become active when you perceive a threat and sometimes that may be a physical threat if you're out in the wilderness and mountain lion is, is in the distance um, or perhaps you're giving a presentation and someone asks you a challenging question uh, so there's some sort of fear or anxiety there but uh, in any case uh, that certainly has its own um, sort of set of connections and neurotransmitters associated with it how these pieces of the puzzle of the sort of broader limbic system fit together, uh, you know, I can't really speak to too much today. Um, I will, it, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, that you asked what does limbic even mean? And I don't know the answer to that from the standpoint, certainly not from the standpoint, I should know it probably from the standpoint of what's the sort of Greek or Roman, uh, uh, Latin or Greek background from it. But um, Modern day, some neuroscientists are, have stopped using that term or avoid using that term uh, because of its sort of ambiguity and imprecision. Uh, and sometimes it's an umbrella term that doesn't really do us any good. Um, so I know you wanted to talk at some point down the road here uh, today about um, uh, Yak uh, Punksep's uh, emotional states. And so, you know, those might be more precise terms uh, to discuss and not lumping them all into something and calling it the limbic system may not be um, beneficial to us. I, I so like that. Some of your, your thoughts there. Um, well, well, yeah, I can give the Latin actually. Limbus, from which we get the word limbo and the game limbo means boundary. Uh, and so it's almost like this was at the boundary line of our understanding and that's why it has such a poor definition. It's, it's possible that uh, that's one explanation, and maybe that's correct. The other explanation, a lot of the uh, structures in the brain are named solely based on their appearance. Uh, oh. Their appearance in uh, either in um, 
large gross scale that is just you just imagine you <laughs> pulling the brain of an animal or, or a human and kind of dissecting it apart or pulling and poking at it and and you see some differences there could be gross differences and so like hippocampus has a relationship to um sea, like horse seahorse and so that that's that you know it's only the shape of it that that gives it its name um sometimes they also do more detail it could be microscope microscope um histology that you know they look at uh, other delineations about the cell types that you couldn't see just with the naked eye but in any case, I like your I like what you're thinking about that. What you're thinking about that it is possible that uh, that that description about using limbo uh, that's an interesting take on it. Yeah. Well, and okay. So I just wanted to ask you one question because I, I think you said something, and I, I may have misinterpreted the gray um, article on this, but I thought the the uh, better your habit is uh, formed, the more you've put into it, the less a brain area activates when you, uh, when you, uh, embody the habit and, uh, mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Be that, uh, it, it, it remains dopaminergically, um, sort of, what is the verb for that? Mitigated or agonized? Mediated, by uh, yeah. Agonized. Well, uh, you know, we have to be careful. There's dark dopamine, but dopamine in which parts of the brain and dopamine is, you know, being released by which cells and uh, being received by which cells. There's also different um, dopaminergic receptors of different types that have different functions. So I, I think the answer, so to your first part of the question, I think that's right. Dopamine, you know, it's important. Um, as we all know, we struggle when we learn something new, um, whether that's, that's motor, sensory motor related or even cognitive or just cognitively related. Um, we struggle when we learn something new and it, it takes more uh, effort on our part. Uh, and that a lot of it is um, more cortically, there's, there's more cortical circuitry involved in sort of inferring what's happening, monitoring our, our, our mental state or our motor state. Um, but that's where the dopamine uh, can be related to when you perform something, whether cognitive, you know, mentally or physically, and it, 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 you know, you mentioned goals earlier, and you achieve that goal, you know, that has a reward value that's is, um, so the dopamine present in that situation is more likely to um, promote or crystallize the, the pathway that was just activated in order to, re, to give you that outcome. Um, and once that's done, repeatedly, um, that circuitry becomes almost just like, just imagine a chain, A, a connects to, or A activates B, which activates C, and that could be physically amongst groups of neurons or sequences of behaviors. Um, and so, yeah, if, you, if you've learned it, you don't need that. Um, it, it's easier to do, and there, and there are therefore sort of less of the, especially less of the cortex is active in uh, initiating or carrying out that process. And then the second part, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. That was, you were asking about. Um. It's, it's okay, because I actually have a response to your first one. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then we'll get back to that, maybe. As, as our literary example for today, Dante's Purgatorio, Canto 4, line 88. And um, this is, uh, and actually I'll start at 85 just because of what goals are. Because what I want to offer in this, through these examples, is that some of these poets from the past were trying to represent to us phenomenon phenomena that we would later come to study scientifically. 
They were trying to offer us real phenomena from the world in these storehouses. And so I think, I think this will connect nicely to what we've been talking about. Great. And he to me, this mountain is such, the first, or excuse me, I said I was going to start above that, but if it pleases you, I should like to know how far we have to go. But the hillside climbs higher than my eyes can follow it. And he to me, this mountain is such that the first part of the ascent is always hard. And the higher a man goes, the less hard it is. <clears throat> Therefore, when it becomes so agreeable that the ascent becomes as easy to you as movement to a boat that is going with the current, then you will be near the end of this path. There you may hope to rest from your exertion. I can tell you no more, but that I know for certain. And when he had finished what he had to say, a voice sounded near us. It may, it may well be that before then you will want to sit down. All right, well, we don't need to go into that. That's Balakwa, a very lazy man. But basically, <laughs> we, we laid out some notes here that, uh, that sort of means that uh, what the purgatorio is, which is a place of burning away bad habits and inbuilding good habits in order to purify oneself with all that fire imagery, uh, that the way starts hard but becomes easy. And that this was sort of a metaphor for any task of the development of skill. And so sort of a literary example of what we've been talking about, you know, uh, broadly scientifically. And then one earns one's rest by developing such skill that one's work is effortless. And so Dante is giving sort of a practical manual to the world or to the working person in the world to become as skillful as possible in as many situations as possible in order to literally like actually not have to be as cortically active and pay as much attention because one's skills are so effectively inbuilt that uh, one effectively moves through life in a more effortless and less effortful fashion. Um, and so let me, let me ask you, interrupt and ask a question about that. The, in, the, in the greater context of uh, that, that poem and, and uh, Dante's um, sort of seven layers of this mountain or seven terraces of this mountain, is he, uh, is he intentionally talking about skills, uh, efforts that go beyond just physical skills? Yes, yes. I mean, because this is his literary tour de force. And so mm -hmm. he is suggesting that as he is writing this poet poem, he's improving and he's going past other poets from the past. And he's, uh, he's using all his experiences and all his learning because that is always what the underworld or afterlife represents in poetry going through your own experiences and the literature that you have acquired in order to represent something new to the world that will again just be another storehouse for another consciousness to take treasure from at another point and so uh the the idea seems to be that what sin is for dante is that which takes you off the path towards uh freeing your will and so in the purgatorio you free your will by uh removing all these these sins from yourself and um well that seems to be like taking your will out of useless endeavors that suck your energy away, which, hmm. strikes, which strikes me as uh, developing the skills necessary to be maximally adapted to your environment, whatever that is, so that your life becomes more effortless rather than effortful. And I, I don't know to what extent you could do that because, you know, very few lives are that ordered and maybe that would drive us crazy, but, um, 
Well, I think there's an interesting, uh, uh, I want to just maybe yeah. touch on this or ask you a side point about this um, or make a, a connection, but maybe it's a, a it's a, something where the analogy or the metaphor uh, sort of breaks down. And that is that, um, you know, in that description, uh, knowing not much about that poem beside which you just uh, described, um, it seems as if there's almost one path there's only really one path and it's upward, right? So you, you keep working on skills or set of skills and you will ascend, right? And things will get easier. Um, but there is a, a counterpoint to that, which is that in terms of we, when we go back to the, the neuroscience and the, especially the motor, it's easy, always easiest, often easiest to give the motor example. And in which you, you develop a skill um, and it takes you far in one endeavor but when you learn a habit or a skill that is sort of mindless in the sense that you're not using as much cortical resources to pay attention to what you're doing, it is much harder to break that habit if you need to do something different. And so, again, it may be easiest to think about it in, um, in the motor system or in sports. So perhaps someone is, becomes very talented or skillful at tennis, but then they switch to or when they want to play a different racket sport, say racquetball or squash, uh, you know, maybe they'll be really good but not at, you know, it's almost, it's very difficult for them to be as good at that because they need to, to, to uh, take different movements or in a sense have different behaviors. And they're so ensconced in their tennis movements that they, they really can't break that habit. And, you know, one thing I want to keep bringing up or connect in this whole discussion is, and this isn't known, but to what degree do we have sort of cognitive habits that right. we are, uh, that we've learned through, through the years and maybe they served us well and they were really, um, you know, especially younger, they served us well, but at what point do they actually become a burden because it makes us, uh, it jump to conclusions in a way. Uh, we may not even be aware that some of our, our thought processes are so-called habits. Um, right. And without that awareness, uh, even with that awareness, it may still be hard to break those habits, be they motor or cognitive. That's right. And uh, we certainly have cognitive bad habits. That's right. And it, that's interesting because that makes me really, um, um, that makes me really think about the fact that, sorry, sorry, the, 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 uh, we just got notification of 10 minutes and that just popped up right in my face. When oh, I, I see that. A little amygdala hit. Um, we can jam a lot of 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, let's see, let's see, so let's see, where were we? That, uh, okay. So, Sorry, I wanted to hit that point. What was that last bit again? Sorry, that really got me. I was so focused in on what you were saying. Oh, just about, just about the, um, you know, we can form bad habits. Or they may not necessarily even be bad. They just may be targeted towards certain goals, uh, certain yeah. values. Go back to the dopamine, dopamine representing value. There was something that uh, gave it that value, and so it became a habit. Um, and those, as, yeah, as the saying goes, a habit's hard to break. Um, and maybe there's, we talk, we've, you know, we've talked many times in past sessions about, or past podcasts about various types of, uh, cognitive biases. And maybe some of those are sort of wrapped up in this same notion or, or they're related. Um, those biases may be, uh, in some ways, uh, mental shortcuts and, you know, those, those worked out. Those were sort of like cognitive skills that we developed. Um, but they're, they can lead us astray as well. 
And that, okay, so I remembered what I wanted to say, and it was, uh, that relates to, I would say, my major interest, which is personality transformation and how that can be done in an actual neural and physical way. And that uh, changing your bad habits from a more youthful time of life that were good adaptations then that are now maladaptations at this current time. Ah, yeah, sorry. Um, and that, that, now that triggered, you know, you asked 10 minutes ago about uh, the limbic system and, but also how it relates to young people and uh, their sort of slower, longer, you know, cortex takes longer to develop and mature, especially the frontal cortex versus other parts of the brain. So, um, yeah, sorry, I interrupted there, but that's no, no, you can, no. you can touch on that as well. Uh, go ahead, please, please do. Uh, I just yeah, to I think that, that and didn't forget it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, you brought it up initially, and I, I'm not sure I have a lot to add to it, but other than to say that's a fact that uh, it's well known that uh, your your subcortical areas develop earlier, and other, and it takes longer for uh, surrounding uh, cerebral cortex to develop, and that's especially true for the frontal lobe, which is most responsible for our uh, sort of deliberate thinking, um, executive decisions, and executive control that is inhibition of our uh, sort of telling, you know, telling our subcortical uh, uh, or not taking um, the emotional knee jerk responses that our emotional system might drive us towards, uh, not being able to sort of inhibit some of those responses. So yeah, it's, 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 this, is, this is a very much explains at, a, at sort of a high level why uh, you know younger people, uh, even well into the adolescent, can be sort of very capricious and driven and uh, by their emotions. Um, of course, many adult, you know older adults are too. But there is a time course through life that you know many that is well known where as you become older and especially as you hit maybe your early twenties and even a little bit later, finally things are sort of. Um, I won't say they're they're done, but they're they're done developing in the traditional sense. But beyond that, it may be sort of more in the area that you were just about to to broach, which is how can you change your uh, personality? Some people would, you know, if some people claim that that can't really be changed. There are some recent studies that show that just like I described, over the course of time, people's personalities do change uh, in certain ways. Um, but we all have go through growth stages. And some of those are purely developmental in the sense that there's literally growth of neurons and other parts of the brain. Um, but then some of it is more uh, your experiences and your own inter internal state of aware and knowledge of awareness. And, uh, you know, the, that's the rest of life, the next uh, uh, 40 or 60 years, hopefully. Yeah, well, well, just to parse that out a little, that may, I mean, there are certain motivated states, like we were just talking about from Pengset, that do come into existence at different times of your life, right? Like, say, like your motivation to make, you don't really have that so much, though you can and, um, uh, and, and the other motivated states, it's just that it, it's that it seems as if since different parts of your brain continue to grow at different rates, that the habits you develop in the absence of your executive function are certainly going to be suboptimal and will require your, your executive function to parse back through them in order to optimize them because they have, unless you've been, you know, really well coached and really, really well, well parented and taught, right? And you have like only good habits, which would be very useful. But I feel like that's supposed to be, that would be like, say, a neuroscientist's way of being a psychologist, right? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. What are, what are the action patterns you've developed? What are, what are the goals they're related to? How have you, you know, 
And, you know, where, where's, you know, it's like an engineer, where's the delay in the circuitry? Where's the issue here? Um, you know, are you, are you setting the wrong goals? Do you still have primitive ways of going about doing things? Do you still want things that a child would want that maybe are not in your best interest now? Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, well, what did you think about that? Sorry. Well, I, th I thought the whole, uh, even from just a purely neuroscience standpoint, I was really intrigued and I'm not too familiar with uh, these studies, but uh, the Yaka Punxeps studies, but it was really interesting. He, you know, he, to, to reiterate what you said, he, uh, proposes or puts forth um, sort of seven fundamental states um, of emotion or motivation. And uh, I just haven't listened to here, so listen here, so I'll just read them off. But play, panic, and grief, which are sort of one, um, fear, rage, seeking, lust, and care. Uh, probably most listeners will know what all those things mean. Seeking, to be clear, is more um, about uh, the curiosity and enthusiasm. So um, if you're seeking your you're excited or you're, you know, you're energized to move about your world and, and understand it or explore it or explore yourself too. could be internal and, and, and uh, internal reflection, but that was found, you know, there's studies of evidence of all this in rats and, and rats are like us in the sense that they have all those same major brain, area, brain areas. But I thought what was even more interesting is that uh, there's studies of, in, in birds too, where they find a lot of this and birds are quite different, but they have uh, analogies, I'd say, or, uh, um, you know, parallel circuitry. Uh, it, they don't have any cortex, but they're, you know, our subcortex, it can be uh, compared to, to their brain. So even without that cortex, they, they have all these. So that's great. And then you're going towards or asking about uh, commenting about the fact that, you know, we have the cortex. When does that executive control come into play? How can people um, through the course of their life sort of um, better integrate, I guess, their executive function with these, these lower emotions, which are great, right? I mean, it's emotions that sort of give us pleasure in life, not just the pleasure like we were talking about before with opioids, but just the pleasure of um, art and knowledge and interaction with people. And I think part of this is, I guess the only thing I wanted to say about it um, from sort of the neuroscience standpoint, beyond what we just discussed, is that, um, you know, humans evolved to be a very, uh, a social animal, highly social animal, and and those social interactions are actually are quite complex. Yes. Um, and so we probably developed such part of the reason we may have developed such a large cortex is in order to navigate that those social complexities. Yes. Um, and some of that complexity required having greater control over our emotional uh, underlying states. Well, that, I think that's I, I would essentially make the claim that the seven motivational states are the original sort of um, uh, polytheistic pantheon of gods. Oh, I like it. Like Aphrodite is lust and like seeking mating behavior. Aries is uh, like offensive aggression. Apollo might be very well defensive aggression or the birth of consciousness or cortex and its ability to lead. Zeus is sort of the order of society that you have to, that the, the ordering principle that subjects the motivational states to a greater system than their petty desires. And uh, uh, this guy Peterson, who's a clinical psychologist, claims that that's what Piaget calls an equilibrated state, where you sort of take account of, the, uh, of who you are and what you are, and then you sort of uh, uh, develop a way to make yourself uh, pleased or satisfied in all those ways. So you, you satisfy your need for whatever your need is for, say, aggression or seeking 
or whatever it is. And you that so, is you you had to balance your needs amongst all the possibilities, right. and it's right. custom to the individual. Is that part of it? Right, and the psychologist would say that something like a neurosis or some sort of issue will arise when those when two of them are at war with each other. So you're engaging in two action patterns or habits that make two of these motivational systems collide. That causes uh, extent extent like extensive emotional distress um, because it's a it's a systemic issue. With right, so I was saying. Uh, until Zoom kicked us off, and so we're starting this one again, um, that it's sort of a systemic issue. Um, when two motivational states or two actions which uh, are, are used by the motivational states in order to get what they want come into conflict and both are prevented from getting what they want, that is sort of akin to a war of the gods, a theomachy, mm -hmm. that, uh, that means that your state is disequilibrated in time, which means that you as sort of the conscious hero Marduk or the sort of Jesus figure or Apollo, the bringer of light, must go down into that situation and fix it by setting the motivation straight um, and, and by setting the action patterns straight that are crossing each other's path. Like, for instance, if, say, you want, you, you know, you want to pursue mating and you want to get a wife, but you're, you know, uh, socially anxious and you refuse to go outside um, and so your anxiety but your desire for companionship are going to be at odds with each other, your care circuitry. Um, and so uh, you're gonna have to parse that out by use of your executive function because A, you can do that just by changing that, the habits or the action patterns or the, you know, that which you have built neurologically into your brain. But I say just, but that's obviously very hard and takes a lot of time but you can actually do that. I like it. This is a, this is like a, a this is a fun analogy. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I need to see some, uh, some, some cartoon panels too, to describe it, but yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. But it, it's great. Really, really good thinking. Uh, and is there thought, so you've already sort of described where one uh, emotion can conflict with another and, and to, to the negative of the behavior of a, of the organism uh, potentially right um and it may be that even uh however i could imagine where there's just one alone if the other ones are inactive um one alone can drive some very negative behavior so it may also be a a question of extremes right and so uh, i don't know if there's a, I'm sure you could come up with some some god's analogy or something from mythology where um Oh yeah. Well, you know, yeah, one yeah. of them, it's not even just that others have relinquished control. It's that one is, one has, is in, fully in control and, and there is no sort of executive function, whatever, however that may be represented to at least, uh, turn down the game, turn down the, the activity of that one, uh, primal emotion or that particular, uh, mythological character. Yeah, well, you know, the one that gets uh, gets it worse in the Greece in the Greek pantheon, at least in the Iliad, is Ares. He's the god of conflict and and violence. He's actually described when he's first described in Book Five as bloodstained, stormer of strong walls, and uh, manslaughter. He gets three epithets because he's a god, and uh, most people get like one. Even lucky to be a god. Lucky to be a god, and lucky right. to be the son because he does get stabbed by a mortal, and Zeus says. 
talk to me not, you two-faced liar. To me, you are the most hateful of all the gods, which is exactly what Agamemnon the king had said to Achilles, his greatest warrior, uh, in book one. And so who Zeus, the principle of order, hates is Ares, the principle of conflict. And um, so I wonder if that's mm, not aggression mm-hmm. sort of, or anger and rage circuitry um, that it can get out of hand pretty quickly. I mean, rage is literally the first word of Western literature. Manon means rage or wrath in the accusative of Greek. And that's the first word of the Iliad. Um, so... I would say that it gets a bad rap in literature. Doesn't, um, and I could be way off, and so it's Ares, not Eros. I'm thinking of like how there are two forms of love, agape, uh, which I believe is sort of like brotherly love, and maybe it's Eros, not Ares. That is sort yeah. of our traditional view of uh, procreative love. Yes, Eros, Eros is, is, yeah, represented as that Cupid figure. Yes, that cupidity, that sort of desirous, uh, potentially even to an extreme lustful feeling for someone. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's and he's traditionally the son of Aphrodite and Zeus. And right. So different Aries. <laughs> Aries, yeah, yeah. not Eros, to be clear. Right, uh, right, right. Aries, god right. of war, not yeah. Eros, god of war. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I think we have a lot of good pieces today. Um, we, we didn't get as much into motivated reasoning and uh, a type of cognitive bias today, but um, maybe we, that- We have plenty of opportunities. Uh, so I think that's sort of one of the underlying themes of uh, you know, the, the series of podcasts. So we can, can always uh, come back to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. We've got plenty more material to discuss and plenty more about the- uh, Have we finished learning about the brain yet, doctor? Uh, it's, if we have, we should probably report that to the rest of the neuroscience community because they're working really, they're working very hard at that. <laughs> All right, good. Well, then there's plenty left to learn. And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, the next conversation and delving even deeper in. Likewise, Alex, it's been, it's been great. All right. Well, until next time. Catch you then.